Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Trusted CI webinar for February 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Jeanette Dapheide. Trusted CI is the NSF Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, and these webinars are part of its mission to deliver high-quality, actionable guidance regarding cybersecurity to the NSF community. More information about Trusted CI can be found at trustedci.org. Today's topic is CARE, Cybersecurity in Application Research and Education with Anshul Regi. Dr. Regge is a, an associate professor with the Department of Criminal Justice. She is the director of CARE. Um, I'm, pardon, she's the associate professor with the Department of Crim Criminal Justice at Temple University and the director of CARE. Um, before we begin, I have a few things to note. First, this presentation is being recorded. Uh, second, participants are welcome to ask questions um, during the session, but we've got a lot of content to go through, so we're going to go through them at the end. But you are welcome to type them in during the chat or during the presentation, and uh, I'll be following along. And with that, I will hand things over to Anshul. Anshul, welcome. Great, thank you so much. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, share my slides. Okay, can everyone see the PowerPoint? Yep. Okay, perfect. Uh, so thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to talk to you about some of our efforts in the CARE Lab. And as uh, Jeanette mentioned, CARE stands for Cybersecurity and Application Research and Education. And uh, a disclaimer, this is coming from a social science perspective. So I am a social scientist, a criminologist by training. And I look at cyber attacks and um, cybersecurity from this particular lens. And uh, hopefully the uh, objective of the talk today, which um, uh, goes through, uh, um, is the role and the relevance of social science in the cybersecurity, cyber attacks space uh, and what it can do and how can social scientists contribute and why should we uh, contribute. So let's get started. Uh, so as I mentioned, I'm a social scientist. So why should we care about the social sciences? And cybercrime is inherently a social problem. Uh, if you look at victims, if you look at adversaries, if you look at impact, right? There is uh, the various aspects of this uh, do have a social component to it. And uh, that's sort of the, um, context that I want to bring to the table is that, yes, it's a technical, uh, you know, sort of area, but it very much has these other elements to it. And of course, even uh, social sciences, uh, you know, doesn't cover the various shades um, of, of cyber. So you do have a legal framework, you have a business aspect to it, and the list goes on. So from the social science perspective, um, some of the topics that we look at, and by we, I mean me and my team, uh, we look at these sort of four broad categories. Uh, so what are the motivations of um, adversaries? What are their backgrounds? Uh, how do they organize and operate? What types of strategies and techniques are they using? How do they make decisions as cyber attacks unfold? And how might they be adapting to any disruptions or hurdles that they experience. So these are inherently social and, and human dimensions that are often very rich and complex and ever-changing. And so this is the lens that we apply 
to cyber attacks and cybersecurity. So what we try to do is to unpack this human socio-behavioral uh, aspect of cyber attacks. And we look at this theoretically. So what frameworks can we use um, to, to really delve into these many different areas? Methodologically, how can we contribute? And we know that data science is uh, big in the cybersecurity space. So where do we stand um, you know, as social sciences, right? What, is, what does that mean? What does data science mean uh, when we're talking about cybersecurity? And so um, this is my team. Uh, we're a team of three. Uh, so I have these two amazing graduate students, Rachel Blyman and Cora Williams, who are working with me to examine all these various areas and all of the work that we've done at the CARE Lab has been funded um, by various uh, National Science Foundation projects. So if you're curious, this is our uh, front page of the CARE Lab website. Um, URL is at the bottom and you can also follow us on Twitter if you like. But this is sort of our mission, right? We offer a social science approach and we are looking at having a multidisciplinary dialogue between academia, industry, and government. And we're looking to make this intersection meaningful. How can it have uh, a unique creative approach uh, so that we get a more holistic understanding of cyber attacks and cybersecurity? So today, uh, I'm gonna talk about the three components that are at the heart of the CARE Lab, application research and education. I'm going to start by talking about research. So what is what are some of the things that we've been looking at? Um, so as I mentioned, one of the things uh, that we look at is adversarial movement and decision making once cyber attacks unfold. So I'm sure many of you are already familiar with the intrusion chain and depending on which domain you're coming from, uh, the description of that is going to be slightly different. Uh, we look at it from a criminological lens as a step-by-step -step process of how cybercrimes unfold. And the idea of an intrusion chain is not something that is unique to the technical field. We have something equivalent in um, the criminological space. It's known as the crime script. So we're interested in how are adversaries making decisions? How are they moving along these intrusion chains? How much time are they spending on these chains? And um, you know, how do they make decisions, adapt, work in groups, uh, engage in a division of labor so that they can be as successful as possible in the execution of a cyber attack? Now, for the most part, we have been using a qualitative approach uh, in collecting data. So if you look at the, the image on the screen, you can see that we're actually at a real-time cyber attack, cybersecurity uh, exercise. And there's many, many of these that occur uh, across the country, some collegiate, some more professional. Um, and we thought, and we observe the red team or the adversarial team for the duration of this exercise. And after we're done uh, with the exercise, we often interview them. Uh, so this is the main uh, methodological framework that we have. 
And of course, as I'm sure you're all aware, with any piece of research, it's not without limitations. Uh, is this representative of reality? No, of course not. Um, you know, uh, the the real cyber attacks uh, vary in duration. You know, the skill sets of the adversary we're looking at during these exercises predetermined environments that have been set up for these types of exercises. Again, also not representative of reality. However, they are useful in serving as a proxy. And this is as close as we can get, right, to the real deal. So it does help us get some insight into adversarial behavior, um, into their movement, into how they work in groups. Uh, it helps us as researchers develop our methodologies. So what kind of data collection instruments do we want to uh, build? Um, how are we actually going to go and collect data? Uh, can we overlay our human behavioral observations with technical logs from these exercises, right? So there's a lot of relevance methodologically here as well. And of course, it opens the doors to a lot of uh, collaborations, both inside and outside academia. So in addition to working with computer scientists at Temple and elsewhere, we've also been able to work with cyber ranges at Idaho National Lab, the Michigan Cyber Range. Um, and I think that is also very, very important to build those types of partnerships and to be able to advance uh, not just the research, right, but also the dialogue. And um, that is also at the heart of what we're trying to do. So uh, one of the things that we've observed, um, at least uh, in, in our uh, research space, is there's a drive for using big data. And as social scientists, we're a little cautious uh, because how much faith should we have in um, using big data and the corresponding uh, analysis of, of big data? Um, does this lead to misleading claims, right, about accuracy? Just because we have a large N, does that necessarily represent the communities that we're trying to study? Um, are we paying attention to the contextual information that can help us guide our analysis and our interpretations and correspondingly our recommendations. Uh, so what we are trying to do is how can we look at ways in which the social sciences can help ground uh, data analytics, right? Does this help improve the explanatory power of these um, data analytic models? Uh, can we make sense um, of the quality of the analysis? And can we inject that human voice uh, into uh, data analyses? So typically big data analysis is great for understanding the what, right? Um, so what are the trends? What can we see you know, uh, in terms of what's going on? Uh, but we're, as social scientists, we're interested in the why and the how, right? We're interested in unpacking that phenomenon. So we really want to work with computer scientists to do this. And uh, good quality multidisciplinary integrated research is really hard. And so these are some of the um, areas where we've worked with computer scientists, where we've used our human uh, behavioral data, things that we've observed, um, and seen how can we connect with 
computer scientists and data analytic techniques um, to develop these, if not proof of concepts, right? How can we combine qualitative social science data? Uh, can we consider it to be big data, right? What does that look like? Uh, and so we've we've done some work in this space. These are the four areas. I'm really quickly going to talk about uh, these four spaces. Um, if you're interested in learning more, you'll see that at the bottom of the screen moving forward, I've provided the citations of our papers. So if you're curious to see what we did, you can go ahead and pursue um, our, our, our work accordingly. So here's one um, that I thought was really, really interesting. Um, we did a time series analysis of observed human data from a cybersecurity competition. Um, so this was an eight hour exercise and um, we observed uh, the actions of the red team and uh, our data was collected every five minutes, right? So what are they doing? What are they typing? What are they saying to each other? And we then mapped it on to uh, the various stages of the intrusion chain. So the model that I showed you earlier had seven stages. We used uh, this particular one that you see on the screen that has about 12 stages um, because we wanted to uh, have a little bit more, uh, and I'm gonna use qualitative social science terms now. We wanted to use a little bit more buckets or categories. We could put the actions uh, in. And then we worked with computer scientists at Temple. We said, hey, look, we have this. It's one case study. It's a qualitative case study, but we have timestamps for every five minutes. And this made the data granular enough that it could be subjected to uh, a time series uh, analysis, which I thought was very, very interesting. And so what you see here on the screen is actions above this red threshold line are the ones that are of interest. And if you look at the arrow pointing downwards, which says disruptions, right? So the blue team during this eight hour exercise at around 10 a.m., the blue team um, disrupted the red team in two ways. The one was it used a decoy to mislead the red team. And the other thing it did was it shut down their access. And right after that disruption, you see spikes in stages three, four, six, and seven. And what these spikes essentially mean is that the red team spent more time on these stages. Now, this is interesting. And of course, this is not causation, but we can start looking at, you know, well, perhaps when the access was shut down, that might explain why the red team spent more time on stages three and four. Right, which is, well, let's see where else, you know, let's research the infrastructure to see what else we can, where else we can gain access and find the tools, stage three, right, to be able to do this. So we can start identifying possibly connections between certain types of disruptions and certain types of adaptations. Now, this was one case study, of course, you know, but can the idea uh, be replicated and tried out across different settings to see if we can come up with uh, better responses. What might these responses look like? And if we know that these are the types of um, areas where uh, the attackers might spend more time, 
then we might know how to allocate our resources a little bit more effectively. Some other uh, things that we thought were very, very interesting, um, you know, um, for instance, certain stages had spikes uh, repeatedly. So stage four, six, um, seven, for instance, you see spikes happening earlier on, middle of the event and towards the end as well. Uh, you had dispersed spikes, right? So stage six, for instance, again, had three uh, spikes across the event. Now, one of the things that, and, uh, you know, that we're trying to figure out is, is this one intrusion chain which is unlikely because no adversary is only going to have one intrusion chain into your system. Um, so, or, or are these multiple intrusion chains that we're seeing, right? So that's one of the things that we have not been able to figure out yet, but it's also very interesting to, to think about that. Um, when we look at intrusion chain models, they're typically portrayed as um, sequential. And of course, that's not a flaw of the model. That's just an easy way for us to understand that these, this is typically how it progresses. Um, so, but we know that it's not necessarily sequential, right? Stages could be occurring in parallel. So for instance, right at that disruption point, we had spikes in these four stages, three, four, six, and seven. So again, um, are these occurring at the same time? Are they all part of the same intrusion chain? Are they different chains? Um, and this fourth point, which is what I alluded to earlier, is you know, can specific disruptions correspond with specific spikes? So, and can we then more broadly speaking, replicate this to see, oh, you know what? Every time we do introduce a, a decoy, this is how adversaries are likely to respond. So can we start coming up almost with a playbook of possible um, responses from security and corresponding adaptations from the adversary. So this is one um, uh, of the research pieces that we worked on. We also looked at social network analysis of observed human data. So here we see these are 10, uh, of 10 members of the red team that we were observing. And these were their various skill sets um, that they brought to the table. And what we then did is we did a um, sort of network analysis of how does each member move across the different stages. And this was uh, particularly interesting because we saw that different team members move differently across the chain, right? So again, if you look at the, if you remember those 12 stages that we saw in the time series analysis, right? Uh, same thing here. Um, and this is again, uh, indicative of not necessarily sequential movement, or just unidirectional movement, if we you know, particularly pay attention to subject two. Um, so something else, uh, you know, different team members don't even go through all of the stages. So subject three, for instance, you know, just focused on um, stages two, four, and six of the intrusion chain. So what does this mean, right? Is this indicative of limited contribution? Or is it indicative of focused expertise? This is where I can really help in these three stages. And this is where I will spend most of my time, right? Um, what we don't know, again, is, is this a single intrusion chain or multiple ones? So for example, um, subject two is constantly moving back and forth. Is it on the same chain or is it different chains? So these are things 
um, that we are trying to figure out. The third area that we've uh, looked at is machine learning to predict adversarial movement. So this time we had two different data points from two different cybersecurity exercises, and we used two thirds um, of the data to train the machine learning algorithms. And we then compared the predictions with our actual observed remaining one third um, of, of our data. And we found that uh, despite the variations in duration, structure, setting, size, and familiarity of the team members between these two different cybersecurity exercises, the algorithm was still able to predict adversarial movement for 60% of the intrusion uh, chain stages. So that was also something that was interesting. Again, right? the idea here, to me, I think the, the idea that's most fascinating is methodologically, can we do proof of concepts to show that human behavioral data as opposed to probabilities can be used um, or, um, to train machine learning algorithms? And what might that look like, right? So this was uh, another interesting, uh, I think, um, intersection of technical and social. And then uh, more recently, uh, we looked at integrated methods to study adversarial movement. So. Um, as I had mentioned, we worked with Rochester Institute of Technology um, on one of our NSF grants, and uh, they host the annual CPTC competition. Uh, and what we did, this particular collaboration was interested in looking at intersecting human behavioral data with technical logs um, from the competition. And uh, this was an interesting uh, effort and the sort of benefits that came out of this, right, is neither one of the data points, so be it the observations or the technical logs, are going to completely capture what's going on. But when you put these together, when you overlay them, uh, it can help reveal uh, invisible collaboration. And what we mean by that is the logs are only the, you know, they capture only the output of the decision-making process, right? If you're in the room and observing them, there's a lot of discussion that's going on about, hey, okay, you can work on this and then you and I can do this together. And so we're trying to capture that. And so that gets lost in um, the technical logs. It was nice to be able to bring that to the table. And what we couldn't do as social scientists, but what the technical logs were useful for is capturing the actual actions that are performed, right? So we might drop the ball in terms of, okay, this is what they ended up doing, but we know the conversations and the decision-making that went into um, that point that resulted in that action being performed, which was then captured by the logs. What, um, what I thought was also interesting was um, technical logs um, are really, really large. And so our qualitative observations were particularly useful in zooming in to specific points of the logs, right? So if we saw at time T1, for instance, the team members were high-fiving each other, we knew that that was a critical point, right? So that might be an indication of, okay, we gained access, now we're pivoting and moving deeper into the system. So we logged, uh, you know, we made note of that time, and then we worked with our computer science counterparts, and they looked at the logs, and they looked at that particular time, plus minus 10 minutes, 
So it really helped look for those key moments such as pivoting or adapting to roadblocks, right? So if we observed there were moments of frustration, uh, we knew that it was a negative experience. So how can that be then passed on to our technical counterparts to look at the corresponding logs? So that was um, you know, something useful that came out of that possible uh, or, or came out of that collaboration. So those are the four sort of research areas where we've used human behavior data collected through social science methods, um, you know, and applied technical mechanisms uh, to, to make sense of that and pack that. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, the, the, um, so that's, that's sort of just, again, uh, in a nutshell, what we've done uh, in the research space. We've also uh, done some interesting work in the application space. Um, and this is also, I think, something that's interesting to look at how the social science um, domain can contribute. And for all the researchers that are out there, right, it's all about the data, right? Uh, everybody needs data uh, that no one wants to share. And for obvious reasons, right, it's sensitive confidential, proprietary, there's legal issues, or if they're willing to share, uh, you know, you'll have to sign MOUs or NDAs, which means you can't talk about it, or sure, we'll give you a data set, but you know, you're going to have to pay quite a bit to, to access it. And um, at least academics and students uh, can't necessarily afford these. Um, so we decided to start creating our own. Uh, data sets. And uh, these are um, two of the ones that we're working on. Uh, we started these um, a while ago now, over a year ago. And we've got two uh, critical infrastructure ransomware incidents, uh, which has about 842 uh, events. And then we have our social engineering incident uh, database or data set rather, uh, which has about 797. Uh, incidents. And both of these data sets are based on purely publicly disclosed incidents. And we've also mapped them onto the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Uh, and these are also freely available uh, to download. We just request um, some basic information, who you are, you know, what do you want to do with it. Um, but um, just to keep track of who's using this and how is it useful. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this first one. Um, and these are just some of the variables that we can sift out from uh, publicly disclosed incidents. Uh, and every month we release the next iteration and um, we provide a one page summary, if you will, uh, about the top 10 most commonly used strains as identified in these openly disclosed incidents. Um, the, the amount of ransom that's demanded, the duration of the attack, and which critical infrastructure uh, is the one that is most commonly reported as being targeted. Now, this, um, as I said, uh, yeah, was intended for educators. And so to date, we've had over uh, 580 requests. Uh, what I really like about this is the application rate. How are um, how is the education sector using this? And a lot of teachers are using this for test projects and research publications. Um, undergrad students are using it for their course projects. Grad students are using it for you know, 
expectations. Um, what we were not anticipating is that we were going to have requests from um, the government, uh, and I'm not talking about just the uh, US government, I'm talking about governments worldwide. Uh, and same with researchers in private sort of security industries, also worldwide. And they're using these for you know, their industrial control systems training classes, raising awareness, you know, assessing their own internal responses to critical infrastructure or ransomware attacks, looking at trends and patterns, um, comparing our data set with their own internal one, which they don't necessarily disclose. It helps them with threat modeling, right? So it was really nice to see um, that the work that we're doing extends well beyond uh, just the education space in terms of application and, and usefulness. Um, and it was really, really um, nice that we got recognized by Security Week and our lab got mentioned in Leaping Computers. So that was, that was a nice feeling. Um, you know, to, to sort of know that we are indeed having uh, some uh, meaningful impact. And this is a team of three uh, social scientists that are doing this, right? So I thought that was cool. And the last area that we uh, work in extensively is education. Uh, this is, I save the best for the last. This is something that's very uh, near and dear to me. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you've all heard uh, some variation of these statistics, right? That there is going to be a shortage of cybersecurity professionals by 2022 in the US, that's gonna be about 300,000. Globally, we've got a shortage um, uh, anticipated to be about 2 million, right? So and again, depending on the reference, you're gonna see different numbers here, but overall messages, we need more people in the space. And uh, anecdotally, I've found that uh, computer science and engineering uh, disciplines are already investing heavily in this, right? So they've got hands-on um, courses on ethical hacking and digital forensics. And there's a lot of capture the flag technical competitions. Some of them I've already talked about because that's where we go to collect data for our research. Uh, and Obviously, this is very, very important, but uh, this is going to be too small and homogenous of a trained workforce to really develop holistic solutions. So how can we enlarge and diversify to uh, really foster the creativity of these various disciplines and various perspectives and bring those to the table? Uh, because again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just technical, right? Cyber attack, cybersecurity is not just technical. There's always a human in the loop. So how can we expand beyond the technical and what can that look like? So um, anecdotally, I've found, at least in my classes, and I've been teaching at Temple um, for a little over eight years now, and I teach a upper level uh, undergraduate elective cybercrime. And I've found over the years, you know, I always ask this question to my students, right? And they say, how many of you would consider a career in cybersecurity? And the social science students feel like they can't because they don't know how to code or they don't know how to hack um, or they don't know how to do digital forensics. And I find that disappointing because my response back to them is, but you know how people think. 
And that can be relevant for adversaries, that can be relevant for um, defenders, that can be relevant for understanding policy and impact and decision making there. Uh, and then on the flip side, I have computer science students who take my class who oftentimes don't understand the relevance or appreciate the relevance of the human. So as an educator, this becomes really, really tricky. How do I handle this? And more importantly, right, how can we in the social sciences be like our technical counterparts and, and offer some hands-on experiential learning in our classrooms? Um, so we've done some work. We've uh, worked with Idaho National Labs um, in gamifying cybersecurity to educate students in the area of power grid cyber attacks. More recently, we've looked at purely human-centric socio-psychological course projects, right? So uh, the one that I'm going to be talking about is uh, social engineering. And um, if you aren't aware of what that is, it's where cyber adversaries use psychological manipulation to obtain sensitive information and or gain unauthorized access to restricted areas or systems. Um, and uh, increasingly, we're seeing a lot of social engineering attacks uh, in 2017 alone. 70% uh, of US organizations did experience uh, social engineering attacks, which cost um, approximately 2.76 million and took on average about 20 days to resolve per incident. So if we go back to the intrusion chain, um, one of the things that I found when I was speaking with pen testers um, that we were observing and also interviewing, these were people with 20, 25 plus years of experience, is they all said the reconnaissance stage was very, very important. Right? And I love this quote and I've probably um, you know, shared this quote so many times, but I think this, this really captures the essence of it, right? So, uh, one pen tester said 50 to 75% of the legwork is to learn about the environment that you're targeting ahead of time. And it could be through social engineering, right? So you can call these people up. So that's vishing to try to understand uh, what operates at their plant, researching the vendors and the systems. So this is open source intelligence or OSINT. And a lot of this is uh, indicative of the fact that the human factor is relevant, right? And I'm not a big fan of the phrase, uh, the human is the weakest link, right? But it is certainly a relevant uh, link in, in cyber attacks. And if this is the case, then why are we not making that more mainstream in our cybersecurity curriculum? And also, um, this is a space because it involves a behavioral and psychological manipulation. This is something that we can certainly address in the social science domain. So some of the projects that we've uh, developed uh, in the social engineering space, um, shoulder surfing, developing pretexts, open source intelligence, privacy terms and conditions. And this particular one, I'm gonna talk about a little bit because I have a video that I'd like to share with you. But uh, students were uh, asked to create a fake product or service and promote it on campus. And they had to convince folks to sign up for the product. And in doing so, uh, they had to agree to a fictitious terms and conditions statement, 
something that had a silly sentence that was embedded in it, right? So the idea is, are, um, are individuals reading these terms and conditions um, or not? And after they signed off, um, the students in my class then had to disclose that, hey, this is fake. Um, we're not really, you know, there's no real product. And then ask them, um, you know, do you realize what you signed up for? So in this particular case, the students got to train in various areas. Um, so thinking offense, right? Like how would a social engineer develop a strong pretext and bring, let's say, relevant props um, and adapt to any unanticipated questions that they might get asked? Uh, raising awareness, right? So once they disclosed that this wasn't really a product or service, they would ask students to think about, well, hey, why did you sign up for something like this? Do you realize what you've agreed to? And they're also developing their research skills, right? Interviewing individuals to understand why they signed up. So developing methodological skills to interview someone, but also analytical skills to, um, to, to sort of unpack the um, reasoning for why folks uh, signed up. So here's, and let me make sure I have shared my computer sound, I have. So here's uh, a video that my students put together. In this flag, our prep was to come up with our initial idea, which was a student spa center giving away a free massage coupon for signing up. We created and printed out surveys, brought out the dogs and set up in front of Bell Tower and other places around campus. The actions were to get people to fill out a survey, meanwhile being able to pet the dogs. Some of the challenges that we have faced were people turning us down and not getting enough foot traffic. The only place that did not work well with us was the Bell Building, also known as Tech Center. People were too busy tending to their business instead of noticing us. Overall, majority of the Temple community that we had the pleasure of interacting with stated that they would read the terms and conditions if it were brief and concise. They also stated that the dogs was a good way to lure people in because a lot of people are dog lovers. We had some people who stated that we looked like friendly Temple students with a good cause because school and work can be a very stressful institution. In all, we enjoyed this project and make sure you read your terms and conditions, which we all know no one will. That is completely my fault. Not reading it. Do you yeah. think from... Um future references, you will read terms and conditions from now on? Uh, definitely. <laughs> All right, so that just gives you an idea of some of the projects that students worked on. Um, and we've also mapped each of these course projects onto the NICE uh, workforce framework. Uh, and typically we do about three, two to three iterations before we share it publicly. These are also uh, available for free downloads. Uh, and to date, we've had over 200 downloads worldwide. Um, in addition to educators and students requesting these projects, interestingly, industry has asked for them as well because they're trying to do something that moves beyond online quizzes for training and awareness to do something that's a little bit more engaging and fun. Um, bottom line is, you know, experiential learning is absolutely at the heart of this. Um, so in addition to learning about the foundations, how can you make it fun and, and relevant? Uh, the best defense is best offense. I'm sure you've heard some variations of that phrase. It, so in addition to developing an adversarial mindset, if you know how it's done, how can you then better protect yourself and or your organization? Um, and you're also training students, again, methodologically, you're training them about 
understanding the importance of ethics, right? So all of the projects that um, I just mentioned on the previous slide have been approved by the ethics board. All students have to complete ethics training to be able to partake in uh, these projects. And they can take these skills and move on and contribute you know, their, their knowledge and their skills in the areas of threat intelligence or developing tabletop exercises, playbooks, informing policy, designing training and awareness programs. So there's a lot of areas where um, they can contribute. So uh, these were some of the course projects that um, we had developed um, since 2017. And we finally got to a point where we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could do a capture the flag competition that was purely um, social engineering based, right? And was grounded in the social sciences. And so we did that last year. I had some leftover funds from my career grant and I reached out to Layer 8 Conference. And if you aren't familiar with them, definitely check them out. Uh, but it's the first conference to be solely focused on social engineering and intelligence gathering. Uh, so we worked with them and we actually had our, our very first uh, social engineering capture the flag competition last October. And uh, we were not expecting this, but we got 25 applications. Um, we even had one international team and it was a three day event. Uh, there were three flags that teams had to um, uh, compete uh, on, and that was OSINT, Open Source Intelligent, Phishing, and Vishing. Uh, good news is the new grant uh, from NSF, and this is my first education grant, so I'm learning a lot in this space, um, is that we're going to be doing this competition moving forward uh, this year uh, in 2022 and 2023. So some thoughts in closing, right, we've got a long ways to go. Um, for social sciences, um, and that we can and should be contributing to the cybersecurity domain uh, in all of these areas, right? Application research and education. Um, for the computer scientists in the audience, um, or a computer engineer if you're in the audience, uh, once upon a time, so was I, right? My very first degree was in computer science. I worked for two years in industry uh, before I quit and went back to school to study criminology. And I think it is important to get exposure to the social sciences because I think it helps you become a better designer, uh, a better defender. And um, you know, if you aren't already doing so, really try hard to incorporate other perspectives if that's possible. Uh, because you do want to break out of that silo-based thinking. And social scientists are just as guilty of doing this as the next domain. Okay? But we really need to move forward to a more holistic and multidisciplinary understanding uh, in all of these areas, application, research, and education. Um, for the new grant, we're going to try really hard to work in the area of um, outreach and education. So in addition to the collegiate SECTF, which is happening uh, October 22nd to 24th of this year. So, you know, definitely let students know about this. Uh, we're also doing many summer uh, social engineering pen testing competitions, uh, which will be running on Fridays from May 14th to August 13th. Uh, so we've submitted our applications to the ethics board. We're waiting to hear back from them for approval before we can formally uh, make these announcements. And then we also wanna educate the educators 
uh, because this is one of the areas that I think is really, really um, downplayed. Uh, when I was trying to design social engineering projects, right, we didn't have, I didn't have a foundation to look at. So I had to design the instructions, the rubrics, understand how to work with the ethics board, risk management, all these types of things. And I think this is what educators really need help with um, so that they can adopt and implement these types of projects into their own coursework with, with as much ease as possible. We're also really trying to work in the areas of diversity and equity. We've actually created a list of organizations we love, um, acronym OWL, uh, and this, I think, is, is something that is also downplayed, is how do we embrace and, and promote and celebrate diversity? Uh, so we've, we noticed that there was no centralized list that at least we could find. If there is one, please let me know. Uh, but we've now, uh, we now have a list of over 100 organizations on our website, right, in uh, these multiple categories. So if you're a researcher or industry, um, you know, uh, it's encouraged, of course, that you can reach out to these groups just like we plan to do. Um, another area that we want to focus on in terms of diversity, and diversity can mean many different things, right, is we want to have something that's available to all fields. One of the things, like I said, with the technical CTFs is it's typically geared towards the technical domains. We're trying to offer something that is open to all disciplines uh, and anyone really can participate, including computer science students. Uh, we're also trying to make our events, um, our workshops, our competitions open to community colleges, high schools and universities. Uh, we wanna keep all of these resources, the competitions, right, the workshops free. One of the things that we found last year when we uh, had our first uh, SECTF was a lot of students in their applications said that, hey, we're so glad that this is virtual because otherwise we would never have dreamed of competing. And that was a nice wake up call for me um, because um, you know, it's, it's about um, access equity. Do, do students have equal opportunity and access to, to benefit from these types of events and training um, uh, cybersecurity uh, competitions? Uh, we're trying to reflect this in our own team, right? So we are a team of women. We are uh, racially diverse, uh, which I think is also very cool because each one of us brings something unique to the table in terms of understanding how to be inclusive and get the word out and make sure we engage with communities, uh, different types of communities effectively. So that's um, everything that I have. Uh, our contact information and our social media accounts are on the screen. Uh, and with that, I will stop and open it up for any questions or feedback. And thank you again um, for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thanks, Anshul. Um, I'm going to grab the screen back and go through some community updates um, while people are uh, thinking or, or typing. Um, so uh, if you have questions, now's the time to ask. Please uh, click on the chat icon to type in your question. Um, 
our next webinar uh, from hosted by Trusted CI is Monday, March 29th. Um, usually our webinars are the fourth uh, Monday of the month, but uh, the presenters requested we push it back a week. So it'll be the 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern. Our topic is the Read Plus ecosystem. Uh, presenting, um, our presenters are Carolyn Ellis, uh, by Jane Yang and Preston Smith. They're all uh, coming from Purdue University. Um, other things that are coming up, uh, short, uh, this is short notice, but uh, if you're interested, um, later this week, uh, February 24th through 26th, the Research SOC is hosting an OmniSOC year three virtual event. Um, um, and you can find more information about that at researchsoc.iu.edu. And actually I have, I collected all these links and I'll just post them in the chat because um, then the, when you look at the chat, you'll see it as a hyperlink and it'll be easier for you to follow up on these things. So let's try that. There we go. Um, and then also um, coming soon, Trusted CI is accepting applications for engagements in the second half of 2021. So if you're interested, um, you can go into trustedci.org application to learn a little bit more about the process um, and see updates there when the window is opened. And that should be coming pretty soon. And then um, just an FYI, there's another um, webinar series that we think you might be interested in. It's the base cybersecurity uh, webinar slash office hours series. Um, this is a, a new, um, the base uh, cybersecurity organization is a new organization that was in, uh, created in honor of a, of a well-known uh, cybersecurity expert. Um, and so if you are interested in that, you can go to basesecurity.org slash page slash webinars. Um, with that, uh, we've got a question here. Hi, Anshul, excellent work and great talk. With the rise in AI, the social engineering attacks are getting much more sophisticated because there is a quote, human behind an artificially intelligent algorithm in the loop. Uh, deep fakes, for example, are hard to detect. What are your thoughts on the social perspective of cyber attacks carried out by AI? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and actually, I'm having a lot of conversations about this with you know at, at our end and you know Shafak, I, I I know you, we've met, <laughs> so at some point you and I need to connect. But um, some thoughts, right? What are the thoughts on the social perspectives? There's there's a lot that's going on, and I can give you sort of one example that isn't technical, right? And this is this is the idea, also. So for instance. Um, there's been a rise in online dating scams, right? And um, interestingly, a lot of these um, fake profiles use um, images uh, that are AI generated. And this has become really, really hard in terms of um, identifying who is behind these types of attacks, right? So going back into your human behind an artificial uh, artificially intelligent algorithm, right? So using deep fakes for that purpose, for creating fake profiles um, that could be scattered across numerous different platforms. Um, and this is this is one of the uh, downsides when we're looking at implications of something like this. And you know, this is this also goes back to my previous thoughts on can we slow things down a little and think about the impl implications, the ethical implications, right? Because we design these things. Uh, without giving a lot of thought on, on security or consequences. Um, 
So I think there's, and I'm sure, um, you know, you're aware of the the whole conversation that's going on right now with Google and its AI um, and ethics uh, aspects of that. So uh, I can certainly talk more about this uh, offline because this, this is being recorded. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm happy to share uh, my thoughts more clearly with you and more in detail um, after this. Great. Um, she's saying thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a question actually as you were going through your presentation, and I apologize if this is kind of like too out in the weeds or or anything. But when you were sharing the um, that screenshot of the CIRW data set, yep, there was a huge spike for 2020. Yep. And so I'm I'm assuming this was attributed to to COVID, uh, people yep. working from home. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're seeing lots of uh, interesting trends in that about which infrastructures are being targeted as well. If you notice, government was was listed, you know, right smack at the top of the list. Uh, you're right. Uh, more folks connecting uh, through home, uh, ransomware being um, launched against individuals who are employed uh, at, um, you know, at companies. So rather than targeting the organization specifically, uh, reaching out to or, or targeting rather employees that have access to these systems or connecting from home. Uh, you're going to see uh, some other interesting trends, right? Like hospitals being targeted. Um, but then you had you had some uh, ransomware groups that uh, had a um, heart okay, and a conscience and said, you know what, we're not going to target hospitals during the pandemic. We'll target other uh, platforms. So I thought that was interesting uh, in and of itself. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, to to see the again the behavioral side of this, right, and uh, the adaptations um, that take place uh, in light of external factors like COVID, also resulting in a rise of scams, right? All sorts of different types of scams and frauds that are going on. That's the, the decision of not attacking hospitals is fascinating. And I'm sure there's going to be some interesting papers yeah. <laughs> coming out of that. That's very interesting. Um, so let's do one, one last call for questions real quick. And uh, as people are typing or trying to get their final thoughts in, I just wanted to say thank you very much for agreeing to present. This was a great presentation. Um, I find this area of research always very interesting because it is one area that I, you know, I'm very, I'm vulnerable because I'm a human and, uh, you know, and I have access to information, you know, for trusted CI, for example, where, you know, I, I, I need to learn my own vulnerabilities. And so this is always good to be exposed to this type of information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Follow-up question, um, is the trend really changing in our schools to develop students and curriculums with interdisciplinary learning, for example, uh, uh, in CS and CS engineering or C engineering? Uh, yeah, and this is also uh, an interesting question. Um, and I'm assuming this is also from Scott. Um, uh, interestingly, all of the requests, or I should say not all, majority of the requests that we got for downloads uh, for, for our SE projects were from computer science. 
And I thought that was interesting because again, I'm trying to develop this with social science in mind and how can we make this more uh, interesting to social science fields, right? To get them started in the cybersecurity sort of training space. Um, and I found that it, it was primarily computer science educators who were asking for this. Uh, why? Because they're like, well, you know, we have a module on privacy or we have a module on, on this and we want to weave this into our larger um, course. And so for the most part, the adoption at least has been, um, you know, one, one week um, in a larger course. Uh, we, I, I do, I have seen programs that, you know, say they're cybersecurity and they're holistic but they do have the one token psychology class that is more like intro to psych. And that does not make the program holistic, right? In my opinion, it needs to really be integrated into the projects um, and, and maybe have like a capstone project at the end where you do weave in these different um, disciplines together and even have classrooms with multiple you know, different um, or students from different domains so that they can um, they can learn to even work together. And I think that's an important aspect of it as well, not just teach about it, but learn to work with people from different domains. Um, so I don't know uh, if, you know, I haven't done a large scale study to look at what's being done in the curriculum, but uh, I feel fairly comfortable saying that, um, you know, this isn't being done. Um, and more needs to be done in this space. Right, so not, yeah, uh, Shafak, Shafak agrees. Yeah, so not just tacking on a, an intro to psych class in your, in your curriculum. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. Great, well, thank you again for uh, presenting. Thank you everyone for attending. I will be, um, posting a, a, a video of this presentation later today. Um, and so be on the lookout for that. And uh, I hope the rest of, I hope you all have a great day. And thank you again. Uh, any final thoughts, Anshul? I'm all good, thank you so much. <laughs> all right, everybody, take care, bye-bye.